Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive faith community deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. A few days ago, I was having a conversation with my friend about high schools. They said the Minneapolis high schools, Roosevelt, Washburn, South, and Southwest, but I didn't hear the, what, the rest of what they were saying because I was angry. What do you think of when I say Minneapolis? Might it include the Walker, Stone Arch Bridge, Lakes, the Malt Shop, Minnehaha Falls, or maybe even the May Day Parade? But what about the other side? What I didn't mention to my friend is that they forgot three high schools in North Minneapolis, Edison, Patrick Henry, and North. I know that when I say North Minneapolis, there's a long history of racial narratives that come to mind. First you, let's be honest, our Minneapolis viewpoint is predominantly South. Last winter, I ran club track. It was the first day of track, and I walked into the basement of Edison High School in North Minneapolis with some nerves in my stomach. I met my new track coach, Ernest. Ernest is a large African-American male with a booming voice and unwavering opinions. I'll let you in on a little secret. If Ernest tells you to do something, then you do it. Unwillingly, I walked into the weight room with Ernest and eight other black track participants who also happened to be Northside residents. One by one, Ernest called us up to squat weights. I already knew that I was doomed before I started. Before knowing my abilities, Ernest already decided what I would be lifting. Dreaming of being anywhere else but this weight room, I watched Ernest lift the weights onto my shoulders. When you squat weights, the going down is the easy part. (laughs) It's coming back up that burns. The weights dropped onto my shoulders and my knees threatened to buckle, but I could feel that Ernest had me covered. That's the real scoop on Ernest. He's a tough man who's had a hard life, but he has a heart the size of Texas. I walked into Edison with my south side lens on feeling caught between black and white. Would I be black enough for my new teammates who have not grown up with the privileges that I have? Throughout the season, the old, musty weight room became my sanctuary. It wasn't about Edison, the weight room, or anything else. It was about the people. I walked out of the season with a sense of raw and real community, a feeling of pride as I was becoming part of my new track club, First you, what are we missing looking just through our south side lens? Could opening our hearts to lens outside our own give us a new feeling of sanctuary? It sure did for me. The sounds of those seeking sanctuary vary. Some are loud like the hunchback of Notre Dame 
as he swooped down on a rope from that Gothic Catholic church in Paris, when Charles Lawton, in the title role, sees Maureen O'Hara as Esmeralda, is about to be hung for being a witch, he swings over and rescues her from the executioner and takes her back to the church balcony, screaming, Sanctuary! 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 And the crowd goes wild. The sounds of sanctuary can also be very quiet. Almost like the whispers of stocking feet going up wooden stairs to where Anne Frank and her family lived. In 1989, on my way to Kenya, I stopped in Amsterdam to see the sights. In taking that infamous tour, I walked behind that famous bookcase, up those narrow stairs. I remember not saying a word, looking behind me, feeling the potential steps of a Nazi soldier. While in those tiny rooms, I imagined the silence that would be required of me to live in this sanctuary. I remember my great-grandfather talking to me once about his uncle, who had emancipated himself from enslavement. Somehow he just slipped off into the night, and he hid in a swamp breathing through the reed of a straw, sucking oxygen bubbles as he sought sanctuary in anaerobic bacteria. Things have got to be really bad for someone to seek sanctuary, to leave their home, to find refuge in another place. Imagine it yourselves, having to pull up every root and relationship you have ever known and valued to leave it all behind. How could you do that? How? Because people seeking sanctuary, I believe, believe that they are worthwhile and deserve something better than the horror that is facing them or the horror that's coming after them. It could be crop failure, perpetual unemployment, untreatable diseases, state violence, or the poor simply preying upon the poor. But whatever the reason, the need to protect oneself and one's loved ones is probably the greatest example of human self-affirmation we can ever witness. An even greater human assertion is the belief that there could be something better. The Franks in Amsterdam knew that there had to be something better than the scientific and systematic extermination of the Jews. My great-grandfather's uncle knew while he was sucking air from that reed that something had to be better than being treated worse than a hated dog. Those migrants walking, walking 
from Central America know that there must be something better, a place for their children to be safe from the continued, unrelenting, purposeful destabilization of their countries. You see, there's something special about those people who seek sanctuary because everybody doesn't leave. This group walking along these dusty paths to the United States are a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of the people in that area. There are over 20 million people in Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. Everybody didn't leave the plantations either. Some Jews thought that the Nazi phase would pass. They'll wait it out. What is it about these people who seek sanctuary? Now, I believe that they are set apart by two things. First, they are set apart because they are self-motivated by their own moral imagination. They believe that their inherent worth and dignity is non-negotiable. Their lives and the lives of those they care for are worth taking every needed risk. Moral imagination means to envision the full range of possibilities in a particular situation in order to solve an ethical challenge. Think about it. The social structures, the political structures, the economic structures have been designed to fail those who are seeking sanctuary. They failed the German Jews, and then they failed the American Jews. They failed the enslaved Africans, and then they failed the free blacks. They have failed the compañeras of Central America, and they have failed the DACA kids in Los Angeles. But they still imagine, they still imagine righteousness, equity, and fairness. Freedom has always been a precarious thing for black and brown people who stood on the legal margins of society. Blackness and enslavement were so firmly connected in antebellum America that to be free and black was to exist as a civic anomaly. It takes moral imagination against all odds to survive perpetual systems of dehumanization. Sanctuary seekers have self-empathy and the awareness to discern what is morally relevant in their given situation. The very act of seeking sanctuary is the spark that ignites the flame of moral imagination. A moral imagination to envision new and creative alternatives. Imagine. I can see myself as a free person. I can see myself as safe. I can see myself worshiping my own faith. I can see my children thrive. People seeking sanctuary also 
have the moral courage to see themselves as human beings and as persons, not as objects whose value rests in utility or usefulness. In many ways, seeking sanctuary is a process by which an individual creates metaphors from images recorded into the DNA, into the sense of, of our the senses of our basic humanity. These senses are stored in memory, which are then surfaced so that the person who is suffering can bring forth moral correspondence in their own lived experience. Now this requires them to have an intuitive belief in truth and that truth can indeed be found in chaos. We are seeing that with St. Muller right now. Truth can be found in chaos. And there is hope for the proper ordering of the soul. Now, I believe that in addition to moral imagination, these people seeking sanctuary are set apart by a sense of generativity, a term that was coined by Eric Erickson in 1950 to denote, as he said, a concern for establishing and guiding the next generation. It describes the need, particularly as we get older, it describes a need for us to nurture and guide those coming behind us. People seeking sanctuary want to first have their children and their communities survive by providing them with safe harbor that they seek to care and teach the next generation their stories, their values, their beliefs, and their accomplishments. They want to show their children that they continued, that their continued existence matters. One of the greatest moments in black generativity was in that period called Reconstruction. Everybody remember that period? After the Civil War. History buffs, raise your hand. That's a minister trick so I can drink some water. <laughs> the first thing that these quasi-free black people did was go searching for their relatives who had been sold all over the place. They were looking for their children over here, their parents over here, their loved ones over there, their partners. And as they sought their family members, they banded together with other people, newly freed slaves along roadsides and in swamps and on burnt out plantations, seeking refuge as landless people with no rights. Just imagine the walking dead, what it was like after everything is gone, trying to eke out an existence, banding together with whoever you could band with to form community. But very quickly, within 50 years, all over the country, these bands of illiterate, homeless people built towns throughout the South and the West as they sought sanctuary from the brutality that is America. 
Following World War I and during the oil boom of the 1910s, the Greenwood section of Tulsa, Oklahoma was one of those towns, recognized nationally as an affluent African-American community. This thriving business district and surrounding residential area was referred to as Black Wall Street. In fact, the district was so successful that a dollar would stay within the district an estimated 19 months before it was spent anywhere else. Not only did black Americans want to contribute to the success of their own town, they also were facing awful segregation laws that prevented them from shopping anywhere. So they ran oil wells, built civic organizations, churches, and a political structure that demonstrated the generativity of a people without sanctioned universal franchise into Oklahoma. Now Greenwood may have been a haven for African Americans, but the state of Oklahoma, not so much. They had strict laws limiting the rights of black people in schools, in hospitals, trains, restaurants, even public phone booths were segregated. Miscegenation was a felony and the Klan was rising. But despite, there's three words I always hear in conversations about black people, despite, until, and yet. And I'm going to stick with those three today. Despite all of this, they had a moral imagination in Greenwood to see themselves as worthy of dignity and worthy to thrive in this sanctuary of generativity until May 31st, 1921. Six-year-old Olivia Hooker was home with her family when a group of white men sanctioned by deputies sanctioned by the city to destroy this town. These white men came through the backyard carrying torches, and her mother quickly hid her and her three siblings underneath a dining room table, put the tablecloth on it, and said, don't make a sound. Remember Anne Frank's house, don't make a sound, covering them up. The men entered the house and began to destroy everything they could find of value. They broke her father's record player. They took an axe to her beloved sister Irene's piano and then moved on to other homes and businesses in the community. The New York Times reported that fires had been started by hundreds of white invaders soon after 1 o'clock and other fires were set from time to time. By 8 o'clock, practically the entire 30 blocks of homes in the Negro quarters were in flames and few buildings escaped destructions. Negroes caught in their burning homes and businesses were in many instances shot down as they attempted to escape. Hundreds of black people murdered and 6,000 arrested for creating their own sanctuary town. No sanctuary for Greenwood or Rosewood, Florida or Bridgeton, New Jersey, or the colored children's home that was burned in New York City. No sanctuary. But Olivia Hooker, that little six-year-old girl, went on to demonstrate the moral imagination and generativity found in those that live without sanctuary. 
1945, Olivia Hooker became the first African-American woman to join the U.S. Coast Guard. She went on to earn a doctorate degree in psychology and help to form the Tulsa Race Riot Commission in 1997 to investigate the massacre and make a case for reparations. Dr. Hooker is now 103 years old, and she is thought to be the last surviving witness to the Tulsa race riots. In Dr. Hooker's testimony, she talked whimsically and with joy about living in Greenwood as a child before the invasion. But like so many, she knew that being in this sanctuary of Greenwood often means that you are living in a constant state of vigilance, always looking both ways, always worried about us being caught or found out or threatened or, in this case, wiped out. The liminal nature of sanctuary the liminal nature of sanctuary space makes them very temporary. A sanctuary, but for how long? Friends, I have to share with you something. I, I do so with a hope and heart today, and I hope you can remain open with me as I tell you. That, and you have heard me say from this pulpit before that I authentically enjoy I authentically enjoy the idea of America and its unique historical constellations. Yet, yet, I hold these democratic aspirations in complete and continued tension because we, the children of enslaved Africans, we, the foundational human engine that made this country, we, the people of a darker hue, have no safe space. Friends, no, I want you to know I have never, ever really experienced a feeling of sanctuary. I believe the perilous, insidious day-to-day -day realities of being black in America has altered black people's brain chemistry. Now, this is my own theory. I don't have any science to back this up. But I think it's altered our brain chemistry to the point that we have been recalibrated to be immune from the fanciful vision that we could ever have sanctuary in America. As a result, I do not yearn for that impossible day when I can rest my weary head and my burdens down, like the song says. I don't believe in that day is going to come for me or the ancestors. I do not hope for it because 400-year-old fantasies place extreme limitations on my sanity. Yet... There is a gift in all of this. Because of this lack of sanctuary, my moral imagination and passionate generativity rises above and subverts the intent of those who would deny me sanctuary. Given the limited resources that black folks have to work with, given the odds, think about it, when George Bush became, 
When Obama became president, George Bush had him a messed up economy. Everything was kind of jacked up. They must have said, well, give it to the black guy. <laughs> See what he can do with it. Think about the stuff we have to work with. Given the odds, given the constant debasing of our very souls, look what we have done. Our moral imagination is evident in jazz, in literature, in art, in philosophy, in religion, in science, engineering. Remember hidden figures? Did you know about those black mathematicians at NASA before the movie? No, I didn't either. Moral imagination, generativity, you name it, you will find some quiet, unassuming black person making a way out of no way, despite the obstacles. Despite the obstacles, we have excelled. Black lives matter despite sanctuary. You feel me, Lena, up there? Hey. <laughs> we have learned to take jargon from the 60s, like that famous book, The Negro Problem, into black joy, black girl magic. If you don't know about it, go home and just burn Google up looking at it. Despite sanctuary, we know who we are. Despite sanctuary, we love ourselves. Think about this. If black people are at the bottom of everything in terms of life indicators and disparities, you know the statistics that always come out every year, then black women, we are probably at the very bottom of every statistic. Yet who has the lowest suicide rate in the United States? Black women. Those with the highest suicide rate are those with the most sanctuary, white guys. Despite living in a society that never has and never will honor my blackness as sacred enough to hold me in complete and unconditional humanness, my worldview is shaped by, informed by, and guided by the generativity of our unparalleled story. There was no such thing as a Negro, an African American. That made no sense. This is the land of native people. I'm from way over there. Then Europeans over here. Made no sense. But here I am, a product of Italian navigation, Spanish greed, the King James Bible, and a disorganized thinking about humanity called racism. Yet, you can't wipe us out. <laughs> no matter how hard they have tried, we are still here. I always felt that black people are a lot like that persistent mouse that you just can't get rid of in your house. You try everything. You try traps. You try sprays. You try sonic booms. And there she is, sitting there at midnight on your kitchen counter. eating your leftover Thai food that you forgot to put away. Always surviving and thriving and she's got friends without sanctuary. Without sanctuary, without sanctuary. As I close, I, I want to extend a reminder 
and a challenge and an invitation to you. A reminder, a challenge, and an invitation. The reminder. On November 1st, 1850, the Liberator, the Boston anti-slavery newspaper published by William Lloyd Garrison, a radical Unitarian white abolitionist, alerted local residents to the presence of two prowling villains. It said that the two slave catchers had come to Boston from Macon, Georgia, with the aim of catch, capturing William and Ellen Craft, a runaway enslaved couple. Under the infernal fugitive slave bill and carrying them back to the hell of slavery, it said. Prompted to action by the craft's plight, Boston's black community gathered to plan their opposition to the fugitive slave law. They adopted a set of resolutions organized with their white allies, including a pledge to resist oppression of any attack on their freedoms. In the first issue of his anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator, William Lloyd Garrison stated, and I quote, I do not wish to think or speak or write with moderation. I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch. And I will be hurt. And Garrison was hurt. For more than 30 years, from the first issue of this weekly until the end of the Civil War in 1865. When the last issue was published, Garrison spoke out eloquently and passionately against slavery and for the rights of America's black inhabitants to have sanctuary. Friends, at First Universalist, be reminded that you can be an ally with a pen, with your voice. You do not have to equivocate or excuse. Use your resources and be heard. Now an invitation. Educate yourself. Read about the Black Joy Project and the Black Girl Magic. Read Audre Lorde and Sister Soldier. Listen to the speeches of black humanists on YouTube. Go and see the movie James Baldwin's novel, If Beale Street Could Talk, when it comes out. Read slave narratives. Listen to gospel music. Find out who Kendrick Lamar is and look at Beyonce's Lemonade. <laughs> get to know the stories of black joy. And get to know the stories of the black staff that works here at First Universalist. You may not know them, but get to know them. Listen to Thelonious Monk and think, and celebrate black survival and thriving with me. Finally, a challenge. A number of years ago, I was scheduled to preach at the Deerfield Unitarian Church in Illinois. And the church is just a few miles from my house in Chicago and mosey on up there from time to time to preach. As always, before I had a smartphone, I had a little hamburger phone. And I didn't know where I was going. I got lost, and like I always do. And I made a wrong turn and ended up backing onto a private driveway. Five minutes later on this quiet Sunday morning in Deerfield, I hear that sound. I look up and I see the familiar red and blues pull me over. So I'd go into the drill, turn off the hip hop music, 
turn on the classical station. <laughs> These are things we do. Make sure I can reach all my necessities without leaving or moving in any direction. Roll the window down just enough to slip the documents through and remain hands 10 and 2 on the wheel. Looking straight ahead, officer comes up behind me and in my most subservient, submissive slave voice, I said, officer, we have a problem today. Did I do something wrong, boss? Not quite like that, but <laughs> close. <laughs> But I'm thinking only about one thing. I'm thinking about one thing. One is I got to get in this church and preach, which is right there. Right there. There's the church. And the other is I want to go home to my children and my partner tonight. So I do what I got to do. And we do the dance that black drivers and white cops do every day in America. But he took a long time to run my various papers. And he was most concerned that I was saying that I'm going to preach at this church in Deerfield. And if you don't know Deerfield, that's like where the basketball starts. Michael Jordan lives in Deerfield, but they don't stop him. But that's that kind of place. It just sounded suspicious to him. And as I sat there, right in front of the church, I could see out of the corner of my eye one of my colleagues standing right there looking dead at me, and he was like frozen. And I'm saying to him, you know, something kicked in and he came over. I'm like thinking to myself, come on, man, wipe me up. Wipe me up. Hook me up. Help me out. Wipe me up. You know, wipe me up is a new expression that I have just coined. <laughs> and that means, you know, do what you got to do as a white person to help the black person get out of a situation, okay? So eventually he walks over and he must have seen my eyes getting wider and my face getting more angry looking. And he eventually gets over there and all of a sudden the officer goes, oh, no problem. No ticket, just drives away. After I'm sitting there for 15 damn minutes. After the service though, I did have to check my colleague. I said, what the hell happened? You saw what was going on. What took you so long to get over there? He had no answer. I've known this guy a while. He had no answer. He says, I need to think about it. He moved away. We lost touch. He moved to California. But not too long ago, I heard that he wrote a sermon that everybody was talking about. And then I was in the sermon. I said, oh, I guess he thought about it for a little while now. It's been a few years, about six years. But maybe it took him that long. That's okay. I still love him dearly. From that sermon, I'll just give you the gist of it. He says, I let a colleague down. I looked at her the same way I have looked at black men getting stopped by the police. I assumed they did something wrong. I looked at my colleague the same way. The what-ifs of that frightful situation play over and over in my head. But since then, I have made a commitment to show up, lean in, and walk towards people of color. First Universalist friends, sanctuary can be about a few seconds. It only takes a few seconds to step in, to lean in, to reach out, to learn about, to try, to discover, to extend, to break up that until, that yet, 
It only takes a few seconds. Wipe somebody out by standing by the curb when you see the kids stopped by the police. Wipe somebody out when ice is coming. Write, think, and speak sanctuary into being. Blessed be. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.